Well, good evening again. We are continuing our series through the prophet Elijah's ministry. Today we will be picking up in 1 Kings 18, verse 41. We will read verses 41 through 46. Again, that's 1 Kings 18, 41 through 46. Pay careful attention, for this is the word of God. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for God's help. O blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, two weeks have now passed since we were last in First Kings, but what has been a two-week break for us would have only been about a two-minute break for Elijah. So let me remind you what has just happened. In verse 1, God told Elijah to return to idolatrous Israel, to show himself to Ahab, and the Lord will once again send rain to the land. Well, Elijah returned to Israel. He confronted Ahab and defeated 450 prophets of Baal by calling fire down from heaven. That's 450 prophets of Baal were slaughtered that day, and an entire nation was brought back to Yahweh. Surely, after all of this, God will send rain to the land right? Well, it's not looking good. Verse 43 tells us that there wasn't even a single cloud in the sky. What else could God want? What else was there to do? Well, today we will finish the drought narrative by looking at the unfinished work, the unstated prayer, and the unmistakable answer. So first, let us look together at the unfinished work in verses 41 through 42. Well, as I have already noted, verse 43 tells us that there was not even one cloud 
in the sky. There was no sign of rain. There was nothing. But Elijah was not discouraged by what he could not see with his eyes, for he heard something with his ears, the sound of the rushing of rain. The word for rushing is often translated as an uproar, a tumultuous sound, or the sound of a multitude. The point is, this was no small whisper. Elijah heard a mighty rainstorm coming. Well, this is all quite puzzling because, again, there was not even one cloud in the sky. In this short narrative, it seems like Elijah is always one step ahead. He hears rain, even though there is not a cloud in sight. And when one small cloud arises above the water, he warns Ahab of a downpour. And to really drive home this point, he beats Ahab back to the city, even though Ahab is riding in a chariot and Elijah is on foot. What should we make of this man? While it is possible that God supernaturally opened Elijah's ears to hear the coming storm, I actually think there's something else that's more likely. Remember back in 1 Kings 18.1, God told Elijah, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. For Elijah, God's promise to send rain was just as trustworthy as the feeling of cold water on his skin or hearing thunder with his own ears. Although there was no sign of rain, he heard God's word, and that was enough for him. God will do what he promises. He will keep his word. And Elijah knows that the rain is guaranteed to come, for God has promised. Therefore, he commands Ahab to go back up to Mount Carmel and to eat and drink. Well, commentators speculate about why Ahab is commanded to dine on the mountain. Some argue that Elijah is commanding him to rest and regain his strength for his tumultuous ride home. Others stress the celebratory aspect of the meal. Celebrate the end of the drought with a feast. Now, while both of these are legitimate reasons, I actually think that we should understand this as part of a covenant renewal service. It reminds us of the time that God first gave his law to Israel, and he invited Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders to go up the mountain and to eat and drink with God. Here, Elijah is the Moses figure who will go up to the top of the mountain with his servant to commune with the Lord. Ahab is representative of Israel's leadership, dining at the table of Yahweh, seeing God's power. Well, we might expect Elijah to join Ahab in the covenant meal, but strangely, Elijah does not sit and eat. For Elijah's work is not done. For when Solomon dedicated the temple, God told them in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 14, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, 
or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves, and get this, and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land." Well, Israel had humbled themselves and turned from their wicked ways, chanting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. But there is no record of their prayer. There's no description of them praying. Elijah did not eat or drink because his work was not yet done. He needed to pray. Therefore, he bowed down and put his face between his knees. Now, to be quite frank with you, the Hebrew is especially difficult here, and most scholars are not exactly sure what position Elijah was in. However, it appears that it was somewhat of an awkward position, and it was for the purpose of prayer. We are not told what Elijah prayed, and maybe that's a good thing. Because as sinful creatures, we are prone to take prayers and to make them into magic formulas. Thinking that if we could just utter the right words in the right way, we too could cause rain to stop or to go. But the emphasis here is not on the words that Elijah prayed, but the God that he prayed to. Well, in verses 41 through 42, we saw that prayer was the unfinished work. Elijah needed to pray to God so that God would send rain again. Now, in verses 43 through 44, we see the unstated prayer. Though we do not hear the prayer, we see the events surrounding it. Elijah's awkward position, the sending of the servant seven times, and the small cloud rising from the sea. Let us consider together Elijah's unstated prayer. Well, because Elijah's head was bowed to the ground, it was impossible for him to see if anything was changing. Therefore, he relied on his servant to be his eyes and his ears. Six times his servant came back reporting nothing. It wasn't until the seventh time that he saw a small cloud, uh, a small cloud like a man's hand rising from the sea. The reference to a man's hand is likely a description of the small size of the cloud. A similar idiom is used in 1 Kings 17:12 when the widow of Zarephath described her small amount of flour as a handful. In both cases, hand refers to the small amount. Well, it took seven fervent prayers from the Lord's prophet before he received a tiny answer. Why seven prayers? Why seven times? Well, on one level, it shows us that Elijah does not have power over rain. He can have all of the faith in the world. And he can pray as long as he can possibly muster. But without God, nothing 
will happen. You know, I often hear people talk about the power of prayer. And now, don't get me wrong, prayer is indeed powerful, but the people I have in mind talk about prayer in the hospital pamphlet sort of way. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about, those little pamphlets, the hospitals that say, well, studies have shown people who pray tend to get better results. The people who write those pamphlets aren't concerned with whom you pray to. They just want you to pray to something or to someone so that you will have hope. And by having hope, you will be more likely to fight whatever illness you're up against. They want you to have faith in prayer. Who cares about the God that you're praying to? But Elijah's first six prayers show us that there is nothing inherently powerful about prayer. Faith in prayer would have gotten him nowhere. But get this. Faith in the God who hears prayers kept him on his knees until the seventh time. Now, some of you are here today, and you've been praying for the same thing for years. And it seems like nothing has changed. Be encouraged, O child of God. God hears your prayers. Have faith in him, in the God who hears. Persist in prayer, trusting that he hears you. Well, another reason Elijah had to pray seven times is because the scriptures often use the number seven to denote fullness and completion. God rested on the seventh day because his creative work was completed. Likewise, Israel was to observe the Sabbath on the seventh day, abstaining from their work. Elijah's seven prayers show us that Elijah himself cannot offer God the completed work he demands. For if Elijah could have done it, he would have only needed to pray once. But seven shows a demand for more than Elijah can conquer. Elijah's seven prayers point forward to the completed work of Jesus Christ, our mediator, who would renew the covenant. Well, while we have asked why Elijah needed to pray seven times, now we must ask why Elijah needed to pray at all. After all, didn't God promise in verse 1 that he would send rain again? And aren't all of God's promises sure to come about? It would be easy for us to think, well, wait a minute. God promised to send rain Therefore, he will do it whether or not Elijah prays. God is sovereign, after all. He does not need my prayer, so I'm not going to pray. But that thought is completely foreign to Elijah's mind. Elijah's prayer was guaranteed. And yet, he prayed with such intensity that you would think blessing depended entirely upon his prayer. Elijah did not think of God's sovereignty as an obstacle to prayer, but as the very basis for it. It is because 
that God is sovereign, that Elijah refused to stop praying until God's promises were fulfilled. And it is for this reason that whenever someone asks Dr. Michael Horton, why pray if God is sovereign? He responds by saying, why pray if he isn't? Brothers and sisters, how could you hope in a God who is not sovereign? How could you believe in a God whose will can be thwarted? We believe in God's sovereignty, and therefore, we pray. While we will never fully understand how God's sovereignty and prayer work, God's word leads us to think of prayer as a means to obtain certain blessings. I get this from scriptures like, you have not because you asked not. And this is why our catechism, when asked why Christians need to pray, answers in part, because God gives his grace and his Holy Spirit only to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts and thanking God for them. You see, God has appointed ends and he has appointed means to achieve those ends. Prayer is one of those means by which God sovereignly, uh, by which God has sovereignly appointed to bring about His purposes. And so, Elijah prayed seven times, and at the proper time, a small cloud arose from the sea. This small cloud is far from the mighty rainstorm that Elijah was anticipating but he took it to be the first cloud of many. You see, just as Elijah had confidence that God would punish sin, so he also had confidence that God would forgive a repentant heart and hear a sincere prayer. Therefore, he commanded his servant to go up to Ahab and to tell Ahab to prepare his chariot and go down lest the rain stop him. Well, we have seen the unfinished work, and we have seen the unstated prayer. Now let's look together at verses 45 through 46, where we see the unmistakable answer. Well, verse 45 starts out with a time marker. The ESV says, And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, But I actually prefer the NASB and the NIV here. They say, meanwhile. In other words, this is happening really fast, even concurrently. While there was a small cloud when Elijah instructed the servant to to talk with Ahab, by the time he gets there, verse 45 is happening simultaneously. Meanwhile, while he's talking to Ahab, the heavens are growing black with clouds and wind, and it's starting to rain, a great rain. This is remarkable. Three years of drought, three years of scouring the land to find even a little water, and now, suddenly, a full-fledged rainstorm. God was faithful to keep his promise in 1 Kings 18.1, 
And he was faithful to renew his covenant with Israel as he promised in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 14. God was willing to take his unfaithful bride back. God was willing to hear the cry of a desperate heart. This narrative then ends with both Ahab and Elijah going down to Jezreel. Ahab was riding a chariot and Elijah was running on foot. The hand of the Lord was upon Elijah, empowering him to outrun Ahab's horses. Now there's a lot of speculation about why Elijah ran in front of Ahab, but I think the point is that they're going the same direction. Before, when the spirit of the Lord was upon Elijah, Ahab and Elijah were enemies. Ahab even called Elijah the troubler of Israel. But now, they are not going different directions. They are not against each other. In a way, Elijah is preparing the way for the king by going before him. Here, we have a prophet and a king working together for God's glory and the good of the kingdom. All of this, the rain, the reconciliation between prophet and king, the hand of the Lord, it is all part of God's blessing. Three years of judgment, and on the third year, blessing. This points us forward to the cross, where Jesus took the judgment that we deserved for three days, and on the third day, he rose again. Or as one writer noted, Carmel anticipates another mountain, a mountain outside of Jerusalem where the fire of God's judgment falls on a substitute Israel. When Jesus, the altar of God, is crucified to save his people. At Carmel, in the third year, Yahweh sends rain that renews the land. And in Jerusalem, on the third day, Yahweh, send, Yahweh raises Jesus from the dead to renew the world. At Carmel, the judgment of God is followed by rain. And at Jerusalem, the one who baptized by fire on the cross ascends to baptize his disciples with the Holy Spirit by pouring out the Spirit like showers from heaven. Brothers and sisters, do not be mistaken. All of these scriptures are about Christ. The drought and the rain, the curse and the blessing, the seven prayers, they all point to the glorious salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. He was cut off so that we might be brought in. He was cursed so that we might be blessed. And on the cross, he experienced the loneliness that rightly belongs to sinners as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might experience the acceptance that rightly belongs to Jesus as we hear those blessed words, I will never leave you or forsake you. Not only does he accept us in Christ, 
but he also hears our prayers because of Christ. Let us not forget our own Lord's brother who said that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was not a superhuman. His prayers were not heard because his righteousness could exceed even the Pharisees. We will see that clearly in chapter 19. But God heard Elijah's prayers because of Christ. This is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not just a way to sign off like sincerely, Chris, or in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name means you come boldly to the throne of grace because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In the words of the larger catechism, it means that we draw our encouragement to pray and our boldness, strength, and hope of acceptance in prayer from Christ and his mediation. Well, in light of this glorious truth, I want to close now, a little early, with three ways that praying in Jesus' name should affect how we pray. First, praying in Jesus' name means we pray God's blessings. We pray God's promises. Just as Elijah prayed for rain, which God had already promised, so praying in Jesus' name means that we pray according to God's will. Pray for his return. Pray for your children to know God. Pray for your pastor to preach the word. Pray for your church to be sanctified. Pray for the lost to be saved. And as you pray, pray with the confidence that God will indeed answer every prayer according to his will. Second, pray persistently. Do not give up after you prayed once or twice. Elijah prayed seven times. Trust that God hears every prayer that is prayed in the name of his son. And leave the timing up to him. And lastly, pray with a grateful heart. Do not lose sight of the fact that you get to talk to the creator as your father You had no business approaching his holy presence. And yet, because of Christ, you have been adopted into his family. You. He adopted you. Pray with a thankful heart, knowing that even if he doesn't answer any of your prayers, it is a tremendous privilege to be able to talk with him as his child. So pray his promises. Pray persistently. Pray thankfully. Now let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to stand before you, not to be judged, but to be heard by our loving Father, all for Christ's sake. Help us to pray with thankful hearts. Strengthen us so that we might pray with persistence. 
enable us to keep your promises even or ever before us and to pray them often. And above all, we ask that you would give us faith to believe your gospel, that you do in fact hear us and accept us because of Christ's mediation. It is all with the encouragement and boldness and strength and hope that comes from Christ that we pray this. Amen.